podcast, we are joined by Herman Gutierrez from Lagrimas de Dolores. Herman and his family own and operate Hacienda Lagrimas de Dolores in Durango. You may recall we discussed Lagrimas Mezcal on a previous podcast about Durango that we did with Tess, who also joined us for this conversation. Lagrimas not only produce their own expressions, but also partner with other vinateros in the region to offer a variety of expressions. We learned so much from Herman in this conversation, everything from the history of mezcal production in Durango to the shallow fermentation tanks or coffins that are traditional to the Durango production style. We discussed the ceniso agave at length and several other endemic varieties of agave. Herman shared his knowledge about the chararias, the cultural practice of horsemanship that is a big part of his family history, as well as the history of Durango. If you've been curious why we've been talking so much about Durango, you're going to love this conversation. There are quite a few Durango mezcals in the market right now. A few agave types to look out for are the ceniso, tepamete, and lechuguilla. I also wanted to encourage you guys to sign up for our mailing list at tuyo.nyc. We have a bunch of events coming up this fall, some of which we're hosting, some of which we are participating in. And as always, I wanted to thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing your comments and also rating us on Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Herman Gutierrez from Lagrimas de Dolores. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Hey Hey Agave. Today, we are joined by Herman Gutierrez from Lagrimas de Dolores in Durango. Hi, Herman. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Nice to have you here. Thanks for coming. No, it's awesome to be here. And it's actually a special episode because we also have Tess Rose Lampert. Hello. Who I feel is now our official repeat guest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in residence. <laughs> Thanks for being here as well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And as always, we have Gabrielle. We just moved the microphone so you can hear me. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, when we have four people, we have to share a mic. So I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, so today is going to be wonderful because we're going to be going into great detail about um, Lagrimas and your Vinatera and your expressions. And so I think I'd like to um, kind of just go right into it. Well, first of all, like, I would like to begin by uh, giving a shout out. I would like to say hi to all of, to my team at Lagrimas de Dolores. Uh, but not only them, but uh, everyone else in Espíritus de Durango that are listening. Um, we have made it to New York, so Durango is now being represented here. So uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a very awesome feeling. And a big congratulations to you guys. We'll start with the expression that you brought for us to try today. And um, if you could describe that a little bit for us. Sure. Well, ceniso is, uh, is the most uh, representative agave uh, that comes from Durango. And the reason, the sole reason is because it's a, the most widely available. So uh, anything, uh, anyone who has drunk uh, mezcal before in, in the city in Durango, uh, most likely it has been from Ceniso, from either Nombre de Dios or from Mezquital, which are the most, uh, sort of the, the largest um, mezcal producing uh, regions in Durango. Um, in Lagrimas de Dolores, we actually started uh, by only making Ceniso. Um, my father actually uh, built the distillery at a, uh, around 12 years ago. And... Um, by say built like he basically bought a still and we made uh, holes in the ground where we where we started fermenting and it started out very rustic. That's fairly recently. Uh, yes, yeah. it's very recent. Uh, he just wanted to like um, kind of like make something that that represents uh, him and also uh, that represents the state. Um, it was basically a hobby at the beginning. Um, we didn't sell any of it for the first few years. Uh, he used to drink most of it. Uh, yeah, he's he's a big party person, and and a lot of people uh, in Durango that know him uh, know this. Like he does, uh, kind of like big scale parties, like at least three times a year. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is very similar to um, the household that Gabrielle grew up in. His, his mother <laughs> specifically, if there is an excuse to have a party, yeah. it is not just a small event. Right. No, no, no. They, yeah. we, like we in Durango, we go we, we go full on, especially um, because we like horses. So we organize big uh, horse like hacks that uh, normally amount to like fifty horsemen. Uh, and after the hack, we drink a lot of mezcal. So that that's where it kind of like began. Um, 
Um, after a few a few years, uh, it started getting a little bit more popular. Um, he started selling it in two stores in Durango, and then as a family, we just decided to to bring it out. Um, I I grew up in Durango, but I studied abroad as well, mm -hmm. and most of the mezcal that it, that that was being sold over there was uh, was either from uh, Oaxaca or mm -hmm. or even San Luis Potosí. I saw a few bottles, mm -hmm. uh, but Durango was wasn't being represented at all, which. Um, Kind of left, kind of like a hole in my heart because I kept on on uh, on bringing mezcal for my friends to try. At I university. was going to say you must have traveled like extensively back and forth with yes. like, hey guys, I brought this for you. Try this is from my state. My That's hometown. right. Yeah. So yeah. every time I went back, I just I would bring at least five bottles in my in my bag, and um, I started kind of uh, making mezcal aficionados in, in uh, at the university where mezcal was where, like no one even had even heard about mezcal so um i went back to to uh to durango and and um so yeah we, we started uh making some changes we we started uh looking at, at a plan to make it into a in kind of a, a business which um uh has brought mezcal into different countries now um, so Ceniso is, is, uh, what, uh, what we, what we started making at the beginning. Um, but after a few years, we started, uh, venturing more into the mountains and realizing that mezcal was, wasn't only Ceniso. It was being made from different types of agaves. And also the, the types of production were, were incredible. They were so different to what, what we were doing in, in, uh, in Hacienda Dolores. Um, so we kind of switched the, um, kind of like the aim of, of this brand to represent everything that Durango is, uh, mm. like all the types of, of, uh, of agaves. That's an ambitious idea. It is, especially because we're not done and we won't be done in a while. Um, the most recent uh, Vinatero that we started working with uh, came aboard on board only three months ago. Before that, it was uh, another guy from the mountains um, that came on board around six months ago. Um, and we've been making mezcal from agaves that we had, like previously we didn't even know that uh, even existed. We have explained a, a few times of the topography and the geography of Durango, but you you keep on saying the mountains, and I want people to understand what does that mean. So you live in Durango City. Yeah, that's right. I and I, these people are. Yeah, so Durango is the fourth largest state in Mexico, but it's also one of the most scarcely populated uh, states. So um, that just means that. Uh, most of the villages and uh, and communities are in extremely remote areas. So to get to uh, one of our, our um, one of the communities that we work with actually takes around four hours. Uh, not sorry, four hours on the highway and then eight hours on on dirt roads. Mm. Um, if I were to compare Durango to a state here in the U.S., it would probably be like Montana. Obviously not as cold, but you know very mountainous. But we also get uh, flatlands and we also get a desert. Yeah. So. Um, it's very interesting because the more the more remote these villages are, uh, the more creative style that they have. So they kind of create their own styles of distill even distillation, but also fermentation types of agaves that, that they use, and um, it just makes this incredible kind of a culture of uh, of terroir. You know, like the, the 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 taste of the place. Yeah, uh, we talk we talk a lot about that here because it is so intrinsic to agave distillates. And it's very interesting to hear about the different regions, specifically Durango, because although, thank you, Tess, we have had you on a bunch yeah. to talk about it, we're, we're just really starting to learn about Durango and what it offers. Um, there was a, a few podcasts ago we did, uh, we did something with Justin, and Justin works with a, a couple of brothers that they do uh, Tolspa Mezcal. And Tolfa Mezcal is on the Sierra Norte, so it's a, it was a it was an interesting conversation about terroir, talking about you know a, a very remote, mountainous, almost in in his case more uh, jungle forest type. Uh, Durango, what what the mountain of Durango looks like? So there is a big mountain range that goes through the middle of uh, well, actually the side of Durango on the western part uh, that is called the Sierra Madre Occidental, uh, and Inside of the Sierra, you get massive fluctuations in between altitude, and also because of that, uh, biodiversity. So one of the, the distillers that we work with, one of the vinatas, is actually uh, placed, and I want someone to to um, to uh, 
uh, tell me uh, a vinata which is higher up. But this one is the, the highest uh, vinata that I've visited in, in Mexico. And it's at 2,600 meters above sea level. So what you get there is just pine trees everywhere. Wow. Um, and then you, you would get somewhere like Tamazula, which is in the, in the middle of the mountains. But it, this is at 600 meters above sea level. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously the temperatures are just vastly different. In one is just pine trees, this forest, uh, where it's just basically coniferous uh, trees. There's, you have a lot of oak as well. Whereas in, in somewhere like Tamazula, it's a lot more tropical. So um, you obviously taste the difference. Uh, you know how mezcal is, uh, is always made with, uh, with spontaneous fermentation. So no yeast added. Uh, and it solely relies on the yeast and the bacteria uh, of the surrounding areas, right? What kind of what kind of agave grows on that kind of altitude? Because uh, in, in Tamazula? Well, the, no, the one that you said in that Tepehuanes. is the, the, the highest point. All right, so um, there is an agave called Wokomai. Uh, people over there just call it Magay. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was it was kind of a funny story how we started working with them. I I actually got a, a sample bottle in in my office one time on, on my de on my desk as soon as I arrived that um, it said Ceniso on it uh, from Tepehuanes. So my mother's family actually comes from Tepehuanes. Uh, so I was, I was very intrigued. I didn't, first of all, I didn't know that mezcal was being produced in Tepehuanes, uh, but less than that, that, uh, that Ceniso grew up there because I know it's, it's so high up. So um, uh, I got a team uh, together to, uh, to go and venture and, and go over to, to, to those mountains and visit the production and i found amazing things there, there are differences even in in uh in production within vinatas that are mo uh, less than than 100 meters apart but what i saw that was more interesting is that the agave wasn't ceniso at all so i was like may maybe it's a different type of of durangensis um they do have similarities uh, for instance in the way that they grow uh you don't really see them in clusters you you, you kind of uh kind of see that they're like uh, scattered about. So that means that they solely grow uh, through seeds. But um, it looked very different. So that's why we decided to take a bunch of different samples. So different quiotes, uh, at different maturity levels. Um, we took uh, notes on coordinates, altitude levels, all of that, everything that we could. Uh, we, we even brought uh, a new agave so that, so that the university could have a sample of it in their, in their um, botanical garden and uh, some pencas and we gave them all to to uh, a doctor that has been helping us classifying a lot of agaves uh, her name is marta gonzalez she wrote the book about agaves from durango um, it's very technical it's very botanic botanical uh, if you guys want i can send you the link so that you can see like where you can get it absolutely um, but after a few months she came up uh, with a document saying that the agave was actually wokomai And uh, so it wasn't Ceniso. Later on, we found out that the reason why uh, they called it Ceniso wasn't even tradition. It was just because there were some government uh, kind of like funded uh, programs to, that uh, kind of like offered new stills and things like that. Uh, and for that, they needed to register the agaves that grew over there. So they just went with the, the easiest agave that, that they could think of. The it, which easiest was common name. Exactly. It, but is this agave that you're talking about, is it a Durangensis or? It's not a Durangensis. So the agave is Agave Wokomai. That's the scientific name. Oh, that's the scientific name. That's right. And okay. the, the common name, uh, we actually had to give it one because the CRM didn't let us export this mezcal without a common name. So since it grows in the Sierra, we, we call it Sierreño, which I know that will come up in, uh, in a lot of people's conversations. And um, Uh, honestly, um, we, we do acknowledge it, it's a common name that didn't exist. And we did speak to a lot of Inateros over there and we asked them, like, what did your grandfather used to call this agave? They just keep on telling us, it's just maguey. Maguey de la Sierra. You know, that with, with, that, with that expression that you say, maguey de la Sierra, there's, there's so many stories that we have here in the past couple of uh, interviews that is, they just call it maguey. But the one other thing that it comes up is like, you say wakomai. Right, that's that's the 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 scientific name. That's a botanical name, yes. Where does this come from? You know, because there's all <laughs> all this all like the stories of like okay, the the common name, but the 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 scientific name also has some story in there. Yes, definitely. I mean, we just recently started working with a with a producer that that um 
makes uh, mezcal from uh, an agave called, well, the common name is, is Lamparillo, mm -hmm. but um, the, the scientific name is Asperrima. Asperrima in Latin means, like, uh, in Spanish, it would, be, it would mean aspero, which means like tough, means like rough. So we do know like where, where that name comes from, but something like Wokomai, I don't know, maybe it just comes from, uh, uh, you know, the, the botanist that classified it in the first place, but maybe he had a relative called, I don't know, something yeah. related to Wokomai. Yeah. I yeah. honestly don't, don't know where it comes <laughs> from, but it's, it's kind of hard to. But that's really fascinating that you guys are responsible for a new classification. Um, well, it's uh, like uh, we're responsible for the cataloging of it in the CRM. The agave had been uh, classified before in different areas of Durango, but never in that in in that side of Durango. What about uh, the, you know, when when you say this name, it almost sounds like a, one of those tongues that it could be from a very small community that they only speak this way. Like, uh, uh, what are what are the the main um, indigenous cultures in that areas um that you have to the peruanes has a very dark history of that um most of the the indigenous uh, populations of durango live actually in the south in what is called the autonomous uh, uh indigenous uh, region of durango and you get four different main groups right so you get the tepehuanos the huicholes the mexicaneros and the coras The Tepehuanos actually did come from Tepehuanes, but uh, there was a very long history of, of them being persecuted. So they actually ended up uh, f uh, fleeing. So they fled either to the north, to Chihuahua, or the south. So um, during that long history, they, they kind of like formed their own group. So, it's, so you have Tepehuanos del Norte and Tepehuanos del Sur. And even the languages got like a little bit separated because of that. Um, We, uh, well, sorry, um, in Tepehuanes, you do not see many, many uh, indigenous populations. You do get pilgrimages, though. Uh, the most uh, sacred uh, sort of um, monument that they have is a, is a mountain called the Tepetluan, which is Cerro uh, Bola in, 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 the, in the center of the town of, of Tepehuanes. And there are pilgrimages that go over there, uh, uh, I think, once a year or something like that. But um, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have that culture anymore in, in that area. Can you, can you give us a little bit of the history of agave distillates, mezcal, being made in Durango? Right. So um, Durango has, I mean, even right now, is completely scarcely populated, right? So uh, settlements can, kind of started growing because of mining. Uh, that is uh, one, so, sort of like the main heritage after the Spanish came in. Um, of uh, of towns uh, being founded, the first one being Nombre de Dios. Uh, Nombre de Dios is actually older than than uh, Durango City, and uh, Nombre de Dios is the most, uh, in terms of volume, it's, it's the largest producing mezcal area in in Durango. So what we think is that mezcal and mining came together. So uh, mining basically made uh, towns to sort of like develop, but uh, Also, they needed something like for like any for them good to drink. starting town. You need your <laughs> booze, right? Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's where it kind of uh, it kind of grew. So they they started uh, fermenting mezcal, sorry agave, and then then they made they made mezcal. Whether mezcal comes from the Spanish or it comes from before, honestly, that's a different conversation. I I honestly don't know. But commercially, uh, it started with with uh, with colonization, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the expression that you brought today for us to taste. Um, this is the Saniso Joven and, um, yeah, what can you tell us about it? Um, well, since it's, it's one of the, the most common types of agaves, I, I thought I would bring you guys in something that really represents us as, as Zurangenses and uh, some, something that, well, it is what we started with in the first place with, with, uh, Lagrimas de Dolores. It's also one of our team's favorites, uh, Fabiola, who makes it. Uh, it's uh, oh, and it's we actually... should we should just shout out Fabiola Avila is uh, one of the vinateras that um, works with you guys, right? So she's the main vinatera. Okay. Yeah. So um, and the and the way uh, the reason why I say this is because she she runs the distillery in in, in Hacienda Dolores, but uh, she also manages everything else that goes beyond that. So like bottling, uh, labeling, everything is completely. Uh, 
under her watch. Oh wow! So, uh, but yeah, um, I think this is her favorite uh, for her to make. Uh, it's the one uh, where she started, but also the, the one that she's been perfecting for for many years now. How long has she been with you guys? Twelve uh, years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And um, and yeah, well, I think Seniso is. Uh, it's a very special agave. It it uh, it grows in some of the highest uh, sort of elevations that we have in Durango, uh, at least in terms of mezcal. So it grows from around uh, 1,700 meters to around 2,200 meters, more or less. Um, but it also sustains some of the some of the harshest weather that there is in Durango. It's a survivor. Yes, uh, <laughs> it does actually survive a lot of uh, sort of very long droughts. Um, and what what that does to the agave, it just concentrates everything inside of its core, and that's why you get such a rich and creamy, like very uh, sweet flavors uh, with this agave. Oh my God, let's try it, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Salud. Salud. Oh, it's so smooth. This wow. is always one of my favorites too. I mean, I know with any line that has a lot of different expressions, it's really easy to go for some of the rarer expressions and things that are highly allocated but every single time I keep coming back to this it's the flagship of the brand and I just love it mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that Fabiola says which I agree with 100% is this is a mezcal for any occasion yeah any moment is an appropriate moment to drink this and yeah. that's one of the things that makes it so good definitely um and it would work well in a in a pairing situation as well I think um so this ceniso is it um semi-cultivated or is it wild um that is in this particular expression um, every ceniso that you're going to try from Durango in the next few years is going to come from wild agave. So there are uh, plantations uh, ourselves who actually started around five years ago. Uh, but this, this is an agave that takes around uh, nine to 15 years uh, for it to mature. Mm -hmm. And it's a very long range, I know. Uh, mostly, mo most agaves actually have a specific year where, where they mature. Sure. But there's a large um, diversity with this one that... Uh, it's kind of due to the, to how it reproduces and it's through seeds. Uh, so if our plantations are around five years old, we still have another at least five more years uh, for us to to get some of that agave. Right, for, and so in the, the meantime, you're harvesting wild. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You are some of the first ones to start nurseries or you are one of the first ones to actually plant it and see what is going to happen because, uh, you know, we, we have a few people from other states and... It's almost a little bit like a gamble. Like you don't really, like until you have like your full cycle, whatever that looks like, you don't really, you, you, you have, you have some, some thoughts of what is going to happen, but not really a response, uh, a response like what Sabrina was asking me of on time wise. Um, yes, we're some of the, the first ones to, to start planting agave in, in Durango. Uh, and we have learned from our mistakes. Um, <laughs> actually, our, our, our uh, oldest plantation isn't five years old. It's, it's uh, older than I think. I think it's around seven years old. But it didn't work out because we planted in flat land. Uh, and you kind of need st uh, steep hills and also very rocky for, ground. For like irrigation for water runoff and stuff? or for That's right. So you need... Uh, agaves don't really like that much water. And sometimes during the rainy season in Durango, it can get very wet. So uh, you need a place where you get a lot of uh, water filtration, like uh, all of this excess water to just run off. Uh, another, another part is because it doesn't like that much sun either. So you need part of the day that it's going to be in the shade. Mm. Um, it's just, um, honestly, that that's what we think. It's a survivor, but it's temperamental at the same time. That's very, <laughs> that's right. it's like when the humans try to come in and like, you know, organize it and, and control it, so <laughs> to speak. It's like there's, you have to learn how to work with it, right? That's right. Uh, and it's honestly, um, a lot of the things that we're doing are, are um, very experimental. Uh, who, who is spearheading this? I think all of us as a team. Yeah. Yeah. So we're working with all other types of agaves. Uh, some of them haven't really worked out the way that, that, we were, that we're meant to be uh, sort of like functioning. So we gathered a bunch of, uh, of tepemete seeds. Um, we started developing them and uh, we found out that it just didn't work out. So the pimenta actually grows more uh, through rhizomes. So it kind of clones itself. So what we're going to start to do is just basically uh, take some of those clones away and put them in a different region of the ranch. 
and maybe that way they, they will start reproducing more. Um, but that's again we we uh, we learn from from mistake. Uh, this year we started we started collecting a, a bunch of uh, of masparillo seeds, and we're gonna begin as well, like, uh, you know, as an experiment to to try and germinate some of those seeds, see how how uh, how well we do. Uh, I think we're gonna do a lot better than with the tepemete because most of the masparillo actually grows through seeds. Um, Did you guys work with the uh, University of Durango? On, on some on some of the, the experimentation part of it? Uh, yes. Uh, well, not the University of Durango, but the Instituto Politecnico Nacional, the, the IPN, yeah. but the sort of like the regional sort of a research center, which is the CDU. And we work with uh, Marta Gonzalez in, 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 uh, in specific uh, in terms of the classification of the agaves. Uh, and she has given us a lot of wisdom on how these agaves like to grow. Uh, so we get a lot of that, um, a lot of that uh, information from her. That's great. Um, and then how many different producers are you working with other than Fabiola, obviously, and uh, what you guys are producing in-house? So four different ones. Uh, there's a new one coming in as well. Uh, it's going to be a destilado agave as well. So we have two destilado agaves, and the reason why is uh, it's, just, it's so remote. Uh, some of them take around 12 hours to get to them. So getting a verifier up there will be... Uh, and this tedious. is a verifier from the CRM that would. That's right. Yeah. Okay. When you say twelve hours, I would love you to explain that that doesn't mean that it's that far away. So it's, it's it's not about the length of the trip; it's about how you actually get there. Can you describe a little bit of what happens after the four hours that you do on a really nice highway? <laughs> so on the highway, it's normally around three or four hours, but then afterwards, it's just third roads, and. Uh, and sometimes you can, I mean, you get uh, really tired just driving on, on these dirt roads that you just have to take a couple of hours to rest, eat or something. And it, it ends up being even more. Um, I think sometimes the word road is being generous as well. Yeah, these are mm -hmm. these are paths. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're, dirt you're, paths. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're looking at them and you're like, oh man, I don't think these were designed for for cars. But let's let's just see what happens. Okay, so um, and I guess as far as the distribution goes in the states, at least, how many expressions are you guys offering stateside now? Uh, right now, we have. Let me think about this. It's. Um, five different exp expressions but there are a lot more coming in okay so uh right now we're uh working with with a few more um types of agaves we don't know uh, when they're gonna make it to the u.s so we're hoping that during june or uh late june um but it could take a little bit longer and the reason is because we ha we have been uh cataloging more of the of these agaves into the crm book uh lamparillo for instance uh it was it was popular knowledge that Lamparillo was being produced in Nombre de Dios, but uh, it was just not cataloged yet. Uh, so we're, we're doing that. Um, and it could take a month or so. Just super, super quick. When you say catalog, what does that mean? Like super pinpoint, because it can be hours of talking this. Right. Um, no, it just means that, um, you know, the CRM actually has a, a maguey unit. That's what they call it. And... Um, it overlooks like the types of agave, sustainability, and all of that. So, for you to be able to certify a mezcal, it needs to it needs to come from an agave that is already cataloged in their book. So it's just basically that. So it's just submitting evidence. Uh, so it's like step one: get the agave cataloged. That's right. Yeah. Okay. It's a register. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, after that, what comes next in dealing with the CRM and trying to get your distillates? Uh, labeled as mezcal. Obviously, the vinata has has to be certified as well, um, and then getting the mezcal certified, and then after that, just you have to have a verifier present for uh, after your production. Um, uh, you need to get chemical analysis for mezcal. Then then you have to have a, a verifier present when you bottle it and, this and for when you every, label it. Every every batch. Every single batch, yeah. So, so it doesn't matter that you have uh, I don't know uh, half a ton of piñas ready and you have one batch finished and then you make another batch each one of those batches have to be certified anything that comes from the seal has to be certified by batch uh yes exactly i mean what you call a batch is very subjective um what we call a batch normally is is uh, all of the mezcal that comes from cooking 
sort of like one batch of agaves. So normally you cook around seven tons of, of agave in in a in a in an oven. So whatever comes from that is is obviously going to be like in different fermentation tubs and then different distillations of that. So you keep on distilling for around uh, I don't know however long you're you're working, but mostly like three to uh, three days to a week. Uh, I'm just talking about distillation here, but there are some people that call each of those distillations a batch. So, uh, or every fermentation bat a batch. So it just depends on what you call a batch. So, for example, I, I know that if you're doing Havali, that is very complicated. Uh, you need more material, like physical pencas, uh, physical uh, piñas to be able to yield certain amount of liters of mezcal. When you say seven tons, seven tons, you said, right? Yeah, that's that right. Is, that's, that's your oven capability. Yeah, for that one batch that you were doing. how how many liters came out of that? Uh, it, it just in, in a, a process, yeah. like it, it, no, no, no. It, it just uh, completely depends on the type of agave and the type of uh, sorry and the time of the year when you're making that mezcal. So um, with ceniso, and obviously this varies a lot with with vinatero as well. But uh, just to give you kind of like an example, it can go from I don't know um, 13 kilos per liter uh, to uh, up to like 24, 25 kilos per liter. Uh, and it, for instance, in um, in rainy season, uh, all of the, all of these agaves start absorbing a lot of water right, and the same. sugar gets really watered down. So you, sometimes you end up needing twice the, the, the amount of, of agave than you would need in dry season. So for us, the best uh, time of the year to produce is probably uh, from winter till rainy season. In, in months, what is that? Um, what are your best months of production? I think from November till probably June, and I'm saying like uh, when it, when it's not heladas, heladas. So yeah, heladas are basically whenever you get like uh, yeah, you get frost, you get uh, you you also get snow sometimes, and that's because uh, your fermentation just gets very like it gets prolonged. Uh, that's actually something very important that I, I would like to to point out about me, about mezcal from Durango. Uh, in other areas of, of the country, you don't get, uh, in other mezcal areas, sorry, you don't get uh, as big of um, kind of uh, temperature fluctuations as you do with, with Durango. In Durango, it gets very hot in the summer and also very cold in the winter. And what does what that does to fermentation is just, uh, it just ends up prolonging it or making it faster. So during winter, we've had actually fermentations that take up to two weeks. Whereas uh, in the summer, we have fermentations that take three days. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that, that affects the flavor profile. So that's something that we cannot control. Um, so a lot of people ask us, like, how do you control the flavor of your mezcal? And we're not trying to control the flavor. We're just, uh, we, we, what we're controlling is the quality. So we're trying to make good mezcal regardless of the, of the temperature that we have. You said something very interesting, but I think one of the things that we learned from Tessin and Noah that also talked a little bit about uh, Durango uh, was that the bats of the fermentation, they're shallow, they're long, and they're they're basically tiny comparing to what you see in Oaxaca or you see in other states that they're like these, I don't know, 500 liter uh, barriles. They're like super, super big. They're uh, also in ground, not over ground. Yes. So that that was one of the things that when, when we were talking to them, we were like, that is absolutely something that must change time, flavor profiles, fermentation stages. Because just by having something shallow versus something that is that big, like the, the motion of the air and everything else is just completely different. Yeah, um, those, I'd li I like to call them like coffin style uh, <laughs> fermentation bats. Um, that's... I mean, that's a st that's a, that's a uh, traditional way to fermenting uh, agave in Nombre de Dios and in Mezquital. Uh, there are other places that have different styles. So normally it is underground. Um, How do you guys do it? In well, we do it in in uh, old old styles. Like if if uh, if you're talking about lagrimas or lores in general, we process in in all of the different styles. So in Hacienda Dolores, we actually make them in the Oaxacan style. Um, with the tinas? With the tinas, uh -huh. that's right. 
And the reason why we can do it in, in Hacienda Dolores is because it's in, a, in an enclosed area. So temperature obviously does affect it because we do not have a heating system that would be too expensive and ridiculous. But um, it does help it a lot, um, especially because we don't have wind during the nights and, and that would affect it. Just the walls help is what exactly. you're saying. Yeah. Um, but most of it are underground and, and normally they will be close to the tronera, which is where you put the wood in uh, for the steel to work. So you do get a lot of heat that does help it. Uh, also the orientation of this. So um, uh, we're working with a vinatero right now and uh, he's making uh, the Lamparillo and the Verde that we're bringing into the U.S. very soon. And um, he's a very interesting guy to talk to about, about how to build a vinata. So he, he built it with, the, uh, with orientation in mind. So he put the tronera on the side where the, most of the wind comes in. So he doesn't need as much uh, firewood. That's uh, so smart. Yeah, for um, for distillation, but he also placed the um, the fermentation uh, coffins uh, where he gets the most sun during the entire day. Mm -hmm. um, it's just honestly a lot of a lot of uh, the vinateros just build them out of uh, sort of like tradition how to make them. A lot of them do think about orientation, but uh, you see in the High Sierra, for instance, that uh, normally the, the fermentation coffins are way they go way deeper so they go down to a meter or a meter and a half or something and um and some some of them even put ro uh, rocks on top of the, the the ferment so um i think it just comes down to kind of like traditional methods and how, how they were taught there's a feeling that maybe a thought and maybe some kind of like weird understanding of what a corporation or what a bigger business looks like but you come from a family that mezcal wasn't your primary business. You come from a structure that requires probably government contracts, exportation. You come from a big, a, a bigger, different business, and you have the you have the lucky and 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 amazing opportunity to to study abroad, as we talked before, and you bring in all this back. You can be in London, you can be here in New York, you can be in, in any major metropolitan university, college teaching if you wanted to, but you choose to go back and you choose to apply all this to your business. Tell us a little bit. Yeah, so I decided to, to come back uh, to, to Durango because I saw all of the passion that, we, that was being placed into this project. Uh, more than, than a business, it has been a project so far, um, uh, basically by my family. And um, I think it, it's it's something that my father uh, created, kind of like to leave a legacy, uh, because it's something that represents uh, kind of like where he comes from, and also um, it, it represents Durango in general. Uh, Durango has had... Uh, a history, a very long history with mezcal, but it has never been exported or it has never been kind of like uh, showcased the way that it is right now. And um, and yeah, well, a lot of people when uh, when my father started making mezcal at the beginning, mezcal was kind of like seen as, a, as something very cheap to drink. Uh, a lot of people asked him, why are you making mezcal? Like, why aren't you investing in a, in a tequila company or something like that? And there, there's nothing wrong with it, but... Um, my father just kept on saying, you know what, I, I grew up with mezcal. This is something that I did drink uh, from 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 the beginning. Uh, so that that's that's what I want to leave behind. You have, and, and this is perfect timing to us, you have an añejo. That's right, yeah. And this has been a, uh, a complicated topic in the mezcaleros because you don't see many. There's not that many background to validate or do something with the añejos because they're more of the the wine and the tequila and the other high-end liquors around. What's what's the story behind it? You, you, I, I'm sure you have something interesting about it. Yes, for sure. Um, I think that the main argument behind the people that are against Añejos is, is that they say that, um, that they're trying to hide uh, bad mezcal with wood. And that is completely not the case, at least in Durango. Uh, if you go to the Vinatas, um, añejos are not something that that the, that a vinatero will offer you, but you will see if you get if you go into this house, you might find a, a small um, cask over there aging his own mezcal that he drinks in special occasions. So it is traditional. 
Um, for some reason, it's normally Jack Daniel's barrels. For, uh, I don't know how they get up into the Durango Mountains, but um, but honestly, the 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 reason why we make this mezcal is because it's my father's favorite, and uh, and I want to keep on making it because that's what that's what he normally offers at at his parties. You know, a, um, a couple weeks ago, I got an email um, from a listener who, because um, we talk a lot about like resting in glass, you know, like, is, is this a thing that's going to be coming up? Does it, what can we talk about? It, it regards, you know, does it matter? Is it good? Is it bad? Whatever. And, um, and he had a couple interesting points, um, one of which was that he knows of a family that he's friends with that puts aside a batch when a baby's born, you know, when there's a birth and they just, they keep it for a special occasion, maybe in the marriage of that child or, you know, a big event in their lives and they bring it and they bring it back. I mean, in glass, sure. But it's something that is representational of like a family moment, you know, of of something that's really special. And, um, I mean, yeah, that's a little romantic, but it's also, it's really cool, you know? And so, I think keeping a the hist like a family tradition going or something that is very personally important to you is all part of the story. Pechugas were that, In, and and we're talking about and and the pechuga is such a such an interesting thing because you, you're talking of more about the culture on the south. If you are in Durango, you're center north. Uh, the economy and the ecosystem itself as a state is different. Durango has money and has other culture and it has other drivers than the south of the of Mexico. So it's 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 interesting, like this is it makes sense. This is part of your house. You're gonna you wanna do it because this is your family and this is what your heritage that maybe right now is still kind of debatable because whatever reasons are. But if you continue to do this and in 20, 30 years you have an añejo you have an añejo for 20 years in your house, you create the culture for yourself. And that's that's kind of interesting. That's an interesting point of view, yeah. Yeah, so um, we have been, like increasingly, we've been uh, aging uh, a lot of mezcal in, in glass. Um, but it, it's, it's only very recent. Uh, we do have one batch that has been a- aging in glass for, for a while, uh, almost six years now. Um, I don't know if my father is going to be hearing this before his birthday, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a surprise for him. I hope he... Well, yeah, yeah, probably we, not. These things take a little time to produce. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, uh, he's going to have his 65th birthday. I hope he doesn't mind me saying how old uh, he's going to be. But um, yeah, it's going to be a little surprise for him uh, that we bring out that mezcal. That's uh, awesome. Just ex- exclusively for that party. It's going to be uh, around uh, 30 bottles, which I think we're going to get through. <gasps> and this is the size of the parties that you guys have. Sounds like that's, a good party. That's when you. That's when you take one, yeah. and put it away. Yeah, just one, just one, and then bring it to New York. <laughs> oh, I'll save it for the next for the next podcast. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah but I think it's a, it's a, it's an also it's an important thing to talk a little bit about. You know, we 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 speak so often about Oaxaca and about the different processes there and, and everything. And, you know, Durango is a completely different state and your experience um, helping to create the new mezcal culture that is developing there and we're having the benefits of it over here. And so, um, you know, especially with the CRM and going through all of the process, I mean, are you familiar at all? Like, do you have friends down in Oaxaca? Like, do you, do you guys ever talk about the differences that you go through or is it kind of similar? Like, is there anything that you can talk to on that point? Yes. Yeah, so, well, I do have a lot of friends uh, in Oaxaca that, uh, that make mezcal and uh, I've certainly learned a lot from them. Um, but, but yeah, I think uh, the main differences, uh, I normally speak about the differences when, when people ask me, like, why does, why does your mezcal taste so different? Uh, I think it's one of the, the biggest difficulties that I've had when I, when I, uh, taste, uh, when I, when I give tastings to people that have never tried mezcal from anywhere apart from Oaxaca is because they're obviously expecting something that, that, uh, that tastes like something that comes from Oaxaca. Um, so they always ask me, like, why is your mezcal not a, not as smoky as I thought? And that is, I mean, the, the differences are massive, you know, first of all, 
uh, we're very far away from Oaxaca, so we obviously have a very different vegetation, very different... Yeah, almost uh, 2,000 miles. We, yeah. we, we did. We wanted to make sure we got our facts right. This yeah. is 1,897 miles away. That's <laughs> 1,897 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Gabrielle. Awesome. <laughs> um, so obviously the agaves themselves are very different. Uh I mean, people ask me, like, I've, they always tell me, like, I have never heard about these agaves. And that's because they've, they've tried mezcales from Oaxaca. They're probably very familiar with, with the big names, like, uh, like obviously, Espadín or Arroqueño or Tepestate and all of that. And whenever I bring out a, a, a lineup of mezcales from Durango, they're like, what is Masparillo? What is Ceniso? Like, are these, like, are these, like, uh, different species of Espadín or, or like, what is going on? <laughs> and then you show them a picture and you're like, nobody, they when look say, way different. <laughs> when you say different species of Espadín, that's, there's a problem in itself. You know, you, there's, there, there, there are uh, scientific names that they're, they're linked to some plants from Oaxaca and Durango. They do. Yeah. There's an Angustafolia. There's an Angustafolia, so, but, but, but the fact that it grows in a completely different environment, it makes a different plant. Yeah. And the reproduction that we often talk about from predominantly from seed makes a big difference too. That's right. So we actually work with two Angustifolias in Lagrimas de Dolores. One of them is Castilla, which is a massive agave. Uh, it can go up to like two and a half meters, like sometimes even up to like three meters high. And then, and then you have uh, the tepemete, which is a wild agave that has a piña that I can hold in the palm of my hand. Oh my gosh, that's so small. Uh, so yeah, you need so many. That's right. So that's why we only make uh, uh, very small batches. So, so normally like around 20 liters out of, uh, um, out of each batch. Uh, last year we produced around 75 liters in total. Do we have any of that over here? That's a, yeah, you, well, only around 18 bottles made it to the U.S. last year. <laughs> But uh, that's what you drank at the well, beginning. Well, guys, here you go. <laughs> you, have, you have some of them at Claro if somebody wants to try. Oh, right? in, in New York? Oh, yeah, definitely. If, if you want to try it in a, in a restaurant, you can try it at, in Claro. Make sure to ask uh, Noah uh, for some, for some uh, tepemete. Something I did want to ask you is the origin of the name Lagrimas. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So... Um, the name comes from the, the name of the hacienda. So it's Hacienda Dolores. It's a, it's a 17th century hacienda uh, that, had, that was basically destroyed after many years of war. So it was uh, Mexican independence, the revolution, and then just complete instability in, in, in Mexico. Uh, different floods as well because it's just next to a river. So it was basically falling apart, and um, there were plans. Uh, like lo uh, the local government wanted to tear apart the. the there's a, f a beautiful uh, bell tower in, in the hacienda that they wanted to tear apart and then put it into a park in the city. So that's when um, when my father decided, like you know what, you cannot destroy uh, this is heritage. So he decided to buy it around 30 years ago. <coughs> Uh, but we started working on it, uh, I say we as a family, uh, for 20, 27, 27 years now. Um, on, 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 um, obviously, it's not done yet. And uh, what my father normally says is that uh, it will be completed by the time your grandkids are here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a life project and, uh, that goes to, uh, beyond generations. But um, the Hacienda, since, uh, since it was founded... It was, it was dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows. So uh, La Virgen de los Dolores, which is um, in Catholicism, it represents the Virgin Mary when Jesus was crucified. And um, in, in paintings, she's always portrayed with, with tears. So lágrimas means tears. And um, as soon as distillation starts in Mezcal, you normally get a few, like, a few drops coming in, right? So we say that those are la lágrimas de Dolores, the tears of Dolores. Mm. That's really beautiful. Is it something, is that the name that your family gave to the Hacienda or was it, was it named that before you took it over? It was, it was, it was named, uh, when it was founded. So in the late 1600s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah so this is a long time. That's right. <laughs> and, and that tells you how, how, how long Durango has been in the map as, as a, as a important city, uh, since the conquista, I will say. Yeah, well, uh, Durango was actually, uh, I mean, it went through a, a very large period of, the, of decline, but um, it, definitely like during the, the uh, Spanish colony, Durango was one of, the, one of the most important cities. It was uh, 
on the trail that is called the Camino Real de Tierra Adentro, which is basically the main highway that led from, from the coast into Mexico City and then up into the United States. And um, all of the cities that were on that route uh, were basically the most important cities in, in the colony. Uh, Durango was actually the, the religious center of, of uh, northern Mexico, so it has one of the most important cathedrals there. It's also on the one side of the mountains that we were talking at the first, because one of the things growing up in Mexico, you know that just to cross from one side to the other are those eight hours on like tiny little roads. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it almost has like a, like a, a physical barrier. It, it takes eight hours now, but back then it was, it used to take you weeks to get from from uh, those towns into the city i was i was telling you when, when so, you came in that my my grandfather is from there and and there's this you know there's these multiple stories of that how it will take weeks on horses because there was there was no highways like to cross from the one side of the mountains in durango to the coast of either nayarit sinaloa or jalisco and, and like it's, it's pretty much you can you can hit any of those points from durango uh days like two or three days minimum yeah and that's actually very interesting because um it did kind of create uh, an economy of mezcal um you do see a lot of uh like the remnants of of uh of inatas throughout the old uh trails that led from towns into the city and uh, that's how people kind of like made money they used to buy mezcal sell it somewhere else or uh that's that's how it happened so it was basically kind of like uh, disposable vinatas, if you can call them that, uh, they would take everything with them as soon as they finished the agave around them. So they would pick them up, and then the only remnants would be the horno. Obviously, you're not gonna yeah. carry, yeah. yeah. So you're not gonna carry stones around, but uh, you can take the still, you can take um, the canoas, which were used for fermenting, and then you would place it somewhere else where there was agave and keep on making mezcal. So it was kind of like a caravan sort yeah, of economy. Yeah, and it's economy. almost like how we think of moonshine happening in this country, you know? Yeah, you just kind of like, you kept migrating and moving. Migrating and seasonal. Yeah. In some yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about um, is uh, the bottle design. Um, it's it's no secret that Gabrielle and I are designers, and I'm interested to hear the story behind it because uh, we see a lot of different brands and, and bottles and labels and stuff. And I know that you said you guys are in transition. You're sort of redesigning the labels now. But um, but talk to me a little bit about the leather cap on top, like how you chose this sort of like mini jug style, um, the information that you guys are providing on the labels. Let's talk a little bit about those decisions. Right. So um, the, the shape of the bottle actually uh, kind of represents the history of, of Mezcal, at least in Durango. Um, around 15 years ago, there weren't any brands of mezcal. Uh, people uh, used to go to stores where they had a lot of uh, different types of mezcal from different villages. Or people would just go to Nombre de Dios and they would bring their jugs and they would get filled up. So it just kind of brings back memories of, uh, of where mezcal comes from before brands. Um, the leather cap just represents us as, as Norteños. You know, like we're Northern, we have a very strong... Uh, horseback culture uh, we have uh, what we call charreria which is uh, the, the specific kind of like equestrian culture that we have in the north can you tell us a little bit about it for people that have never heard that term or what that means because it's such an important aspect of the culture so charreria is uh is kind of like a uh combination of different sports that you do on horseback but it's also a very it's an entire culture behind it it's it's a lifestyle it's how you how you dress as well um it's like really big dresses for the ladies right that's right and it's actually very beautiful because they do choreographies on horses my uh i have two cousins that that um that are escaramuzas which is uh, the female um sort of um equivalent of a charro and they do choreographies on top of horses, and it's just incredible to see. I mean, like, when you say choreography, they're dancing with the horse. Yeah, exactly. The horse, so the horse is dancing. The horse is so dancing. Yeah. 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 So they don't actually move a lot. They, like they they make the horse dance. Yeah. And um and yeah, so it's, it's maybe we can post a video of that when when um on the website in in correlation with definitely. this talk. Um, That'd be great. 
And um, so the leather kind of represents uh, all of that because uh, what you see a lot in that culture is is leather. So you yeah. see it in in boots and saddles and basically everything in, in that. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of a nod to to the culture. And what about the uh, emblem on top of the cap? So the emblem on top actually is the brand uh, that, that we use as a family. Um, normally when you own uh, horses or you own cattle, it doesn't matter how many, you have to have a brand. Uh, it's almost a, kind of like a legal thing. People have uh, cards that kind of like a identification for these. When you say brand, it's like a symbol that denotes your family. Is It's almost like a crest, but yeah. it's not a crest. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like a, yeah. So that's what you use to brand your animals. Um, so, so that they know that it belongs to you. That's right. Uh -huh. uh, otherwise, it gets really confusing because uh, there are a lot of shared lands. But uh, something that is, that's uh, quite interesting is that every single vinatero that we work with has a brand. So we're, in the new labels, we're going to mention that. We're going to put the cool. vinateros' brand. Very like cool. Some of them have like three cows, but they, they have to have a brand legally to be able to identify them because if they get stolen, they yeah. won't be able to like say, like these are my cows. And or, uh, just to, to help people understand, I mean, obviously, you guys, you're listening to us talk. Go on our website. We'll show you pictures of, of the brand of Lagrimas. But um, just to describe it a little bit is it it looks sort of like um, a cross between like a sickle and an anvil to me. Um, so what what is this? What is this symbol? It's a pick and a shovel. A so, a yeah, so it, 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 it kind of represents where we come from. Um, on both sides of my family, uh, we're, uh, we're miners. The brand kind of represents uh, mining, but also hard work. Yeah. So that, that's kind of like something because that... Because it's important to say that this project, this the, the Hacienda and everything, has been built from scratch that's in right. your family. Yeah. Started by the patriarch of the family, which is your father, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, can so we hate, can we say his name? Yeah. We, we, he, we yeah. refer of him as the father, <laughs> but we, I think he has a full name. Yeah. So a big shout out to my father. His name is Jaime Gutierrez. Yes. And um, yeah, well, he he uh, he obviously raised us in a very kind of like strict manner, where where uh, where everything that that you have has to be worked for, and that is that is why the crest it kind of like symbolizes hard work so yeah. nothing that we have is because it was given it was we had to work for it and i want to be as egalitarian as possible can you please shout out the other members of your family that are part of this wonderful venture yes definitely so my mother her, her name is nympha and then my two brothers uh, rodrigo and jaime and where do you fall in the mix uh i'm the i'm the little one you know you were telling me that you guys are in the process of sort of redesigning some stuff like the website the labels you're going to come out with new labels now but i wanted to port, point people in the direction of um, your distributor t edward wines um and they have a wonderful page for uh lagrimas where they highlight very specific information about each expression so oftentimes we talk to you guys about like you know look at what's on the label like read up try to do your research and um and um, yeah, the the website is wonderful because what is lacking in the label? Because you know we you can't fit everything on the label. Sometimes it just doesn't work with the bottle size or shape or design or whatever. And um, and and on this website, you can find all of the facts, all of the information. They go into extreme detail. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, so and we really appreciate that. They really like explaining about mezcal. They they're, uh, they explain basically every uh, every everything about their their spirits. They're mostly. Yeah. They're very uh, thorough. And I mean, you know, we see a lot of different websites and, and distributors and I have to really hats off to them because um, the the quality of information and even the way that it's organized, it's it's really palatable. It's very friendly to, to see and to, to read about. And I appreciate that. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you feel is either a misconception or that people just really don't know about being a producer-owned brand from Durango? Like if there's something that you can say like, Hey guys, like I know we're kind of new in the field in in the states at least, um, but this is this is why we're different. Or look at these kind of different aspects about what we're doing, um, and it doesn't have to be in relationship to what's going on in Oaxaca. Just just for you guys, like how you are doing things a little bit differently or individually. Yeah. So how I spoke a little bit about um, how we help out uh, our producers in terms of uh, making sure that. That, uh, that they work uh, as in that they're making a mezcal and they, they work comfortably uh, doing so, um, is the fact that uh, we've been trying to get shredders basically to everyone. 
and that's something that I know that is very controversial and I know a lot of people uh, prefer um, when it's hand crushed. In Durango, we don't have re we don't really have taonas uh, and and donkeys. Um, it's mainly done by hand uh, with axes and with mallets. Um, but that uh, that obviously comes to the ex that, uh, at the expense of someone's very, uh, long term health. So we are trying to get shredders. Um, so out of the five distilleries that that, that make up Lagrimas Dolores, three of them already work with shredders, and the other ones that don't. They don't yet because they don't have electrical power inside of the Rinatas. So that's something that we have to address first and, the, and then the shredder. Um, if a Vinatero doesn't want to work with a shredder, then we'll, we will definitely respect that. But uh, the case is right now that everyone wants a shredder and, and it's because it's making their life a lot easier and they don't have to worry about having back problems or, or basically just long-term health issues. Uh, I know that you as a brand also work with other brands and there's like this group of Durango brands called uh, Espiritus de Durango. Espiritus de Durango. Uh, are you part of that group too? Yes. So okay. it's um, it's actually uh, seven, of, seven of us that founded the, the group. And um, it's Herman, you're the president of the group, right? Yes, I am yeah. the president. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Those brands that they, f they figure out that group, like, can you tell us about it? Um, <laughs> so yeah, big shout out to them as well because uh, we 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 are trying and uh, we're working very hard to uh, to get the name of Durango um, out in the world. So we realized that uh, we were all working separately uh, to make a name for Durango, and it didn't really work out like that because uh, normally what happens is that. Uh, um, a restaurant or a bar that specializes in agave buys uh, mezcal from Durango to have something different uh, rather than, than having a, a mezcal, you know? So they have like mezcal, it doesn't matter, like they, they don't even have to say it's from Oaxaca and then it's mezcal from Durango. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of wa want to push a, a sort of like away from that mentality and actually recognize mezcal from Durango as mezcal. So uh, the only the only way that we found that we could do that is we, if we could actually just get together as a co cooperative and work together to uh, to promote mezcals abroad. I think I think there's a super important point that you just mentioned, but it comes with a very 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 complicated uh, afterthought that is education. Like in order for people to understand that you are not the mezcal from Durango that you're just a mezcal and you are equally as good. Or like, for example, just the names that we mentioned today, Tepemete, Masparillo, like you don't see them. Like you will have to research a little bit. And, and so I think your biggest challenge is going to be to be part of the conversation, of the daily conversation of the restaurants, of like your espadín, your javali, your tepestate, your tepemete, your masparillo, your cenizo. your cenizo, that they have to be on, they are on the same plane, but they have to be understand as the same plane. Because we're tasting this right now, and you know we, we, we often don't say too much, but this is excellent quality, period. And I also, um, I just wanted to bring it back to the shredder for a second, because I think it's important. We didn't, we didn't say this specifically. It was, it was implied that you're providing shredders to whoever, whomever wants to, to use them, but they're not diesel driven shredders that you're, that you're offering, right? They're electric because a lot of times in the conversation, when we talk about, oh, how is the mash done? Is it done? Okay. If it's done with a machine, then we've got diesel fumes going on or we've got, you know, it's bad for the environment or like whatever, but like electric is a whole different story. And you were telling me like one of the challenges is that not all of the vinatas have the proper electrical system to be able to run it. <laughs> yeah. Tesla. Yeah, so, so if Elon Musk is listening right now. <laughs> no, he wanted to make a tequila. I think. Oh yeah, that's so right. Let's let's let's. So, so if Elon won. Musk is there listening right now, he can uh, he can come and uh, and help us out here. Uh, but yeah, um, yes, we if we provide uh, shredders. I mean, the the, the the vinateros that are working with shredders right now. Um, the, well, the two other than than lagrimas, uh, sorry, than haciendo dolores. Um, 
they already had them before, so we did we did not bring it to them. But the other two, um, they don't have electrical power in the Vinata, so that's why we haven't been able to give them a shredder. Um, we just need to figure that out. And uh, I think we just need to figure out how we can get electrical power to them uh, without it be becoming too expensive as a, as a uh, sort of in terms of a, a production, uh, something that can be sustainable for them, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, something in the lines of uh, solar power, so solar power would probably kind of be uh, the only solution that, we, that we're looking into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to hear about in the future. Um, I, I think lastly, I'd, I'd like to you to talk just a little bit about what the experience has been like been like for uh, Lagrimas, um, kind of rolling out on a global level. Because I know um, how many countries are you guys uh, currently represented in right now? Um, so we're in uh, in the U.S., in Canada, in Australia, obviously Mexico, uh, in a few countries in in Europe. Are you in, are you in the UK? No, not, not yet. Yeah, you got to work on that. I do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's been one of my biggest nightmares because <laughs> why? It, because it's uh, the UK is obviously a uh, it obviously takes a big part of my heart. Yeah. Um, but I haven't been able to to get it up there. Okay. Um, Everyone that's listening in the UK, <laughs> all five, all five of you, we have some listeners. <laughs> Help them out. <laughs> this but, stuff is too good to not have. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're trying to uh, spread the love. Obviously, we're, we're trying to get the name of Durango outside of uh, outside of our country. And um, you know, you rarely see, you rarely hear the name Durango inside of Mexico in the first place. So uh, for us to be. Uh, represented in New York and, uh, and in Chicago and in Australia, uh, that that just kind of brings a big sense, big sense of pride. You saw it now, but you get a lot of love in New York. I do, yeah. You know, like, we do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've been looking at your Instagram account, <laughs> <laughs> and in no small part, thanks to Tess, thanks for spreading the word. Absolutely, happy to be the cheerleader. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. And I think that um, to that. To that note, like there's going to be some really exciting up and coming events that are going to be organized. I know Tess has got some tricks up her sleeve, so stay tuned for more about that. So yeah, Tess has been uh, a real crusader for for Durango Mezcal for a while. Um, so I, I, that's why I wanted to give her give her thanks like, uh, on the air. Um, I have been inviting inviting her uh, for a few years now, but uh, she only made her first trip in January, and then she keeps on coming back. So uh, I, there I, must be something to it. I, I hate to tell you, I told you so. <laughs> you did, you did. It took me a while, and then everyone said, "You're welcome anytime." I was like, "Cool, I'm coming right back. Be there in <laughs> and a few I'm months, bringing people with me every single time." <laughs> yeah, slowly but surely, I'll just bring all of New York with me. That sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> well, Arman, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about Lagrimas de Dolores. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Saludita. Saludita. Hey, hey, is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salicita.